Hello and welcome to Networks, the Neuroscience of Creativity, where we employ interdisciplinary approach of combining science, art and philosophy into one to observe the thing that we all have in common, that is the human mind. The human mind in all its intricacies and variations takes on an unlimited expanse of possibilities. And yet, it also provides the most basic functions of what makes the human organism human. In the last episode, we stopped at an example of an interview question as narrated by the famous astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse said that amongst two candidates appearing for an architect's job, he asked them the height of the building that they were interviewing in. The first candidate, completely up to speed with his knowledge, knew exactly the height of the building and answered it correctly. He said it was 230 meters. The second candidate did not know the answer, but he said he would find it out. He went outside, measured his own shadow, measured the shadow of the building, put both values in an equation and came up with an approximate figure of 220 meters plus minus 5. Whether or not this is an, a hypothetical situation or a real one, Neil deGrasse's point was driven home. He said that despite perfect knowledge of the first candidate, he would prefer giving the job to the second one because of the method he employed. My question for listeners in the last episode was, what do you attribute the second candidate's answer? Was it intelligence or creativity? And the purpose of posing this question was to try and think of these two modalities in all, it, all their differences. I begin this episode here to delve a bit further into what intelligence and creativity are. The field of neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience at that is a relatively new field in the sciences. Although cognition was a subject of interest to philosophers much early on, the effort of Studying the neurological basis of cognition didn't really start until the early 1900s. The term cognition means the mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience and the senses. Intelligence and creativity, therefore, are components of the co cognitive process and these two will be discussed here. Let us look at the history of development of this discipline, an excellent account of which has been described by Dr. Nancy Anderson in her book, The Creating Brain. So the story goes that in the early 20th century, a lawyer named Alfred Binet in France, who was not trained as a neuroscientist, nonetheless got fascinated to see how his daughter's minds learned new things and developed as they grew. He developed what became the first tests of intelligence. Subsequently, he was commissioned to be part of a committee to evaluate children who were thought to have learning disabilities. In those non-politically correct times, these children were called retarded. 
in an effort to identify those children who would be capable of learning under tailored guidance. So this is how Binet developed the first tests of memory and reasoning. Within, the f within a few years, he could see that a child's knowledge steadily changes and increases with age and experience. He tested the children, determined how they performed on his tests, and as they grow older, the average of those came to be known as the mental age. Then he created the intelligent quotient as a relation between actual chronological age measured by his tests and the average mental age that he had predetermined. For example, if a 10-year-old child has the mental age equivalent of a 14-year-old, according to the Binet questionnaire, his IQ would be 140. This basic concept is still used more than a century later to measure the traditional IQ scores. In the same era, on the other side of Atlantic, in America, a gifted young man called Louis Tillman, who was born to a big farming family with no particular proclivity for academics, worked his way up to a PhD psychology program in Clark University, Massachusetts as he got interested in learning how the human mind works. In today's age, where child prodigies are celebrated and cultivated, it seems strange and unlikely that not too long ago, the wild, widely held social view was that a child who seems very bright when he's young experiences social and intellectual decline as he grows older. So genius in children was not particularly seen as a good thing. And it was typified in the slogan, early ripe, early rotten. As part of his PhD thesis, Terman conducted a study before the IQ tests in France had been published, comparing two groups of children, bright and dull. His study did not confirm the early ripe early rotten principle and it actually inspired him to plan a long-term longitudinal study of the life history of children who were considered highly gifted. He later joined the faculty in Stanford and with the help of his students formulated an English adaptation of the Alfred Binet test which he named the Stanford Binet test. This test was carried out on more than a thousand students and the results were published in a groundbreaking book in the 1916 called The Measure of Intelligence. In 1921, post-World War I, Terman began his landmark study, that is, the long-term predictive value of a high IQ. What he did was that he started examining children born around the 1910 year whose IQ scores ranged from 135 to 200 with an average of 151 for boys and 150 for girls. At the time that he started the study, these children would have been 11 years old. These subjects 
subjects then became known as the termites and they were followed for more than 70 years even after Terman's death in 1956. The test by Terman, uh, often called as the Terman geniuses, is remarkable in several aspects, especially in its conceptualization. Not just being contended with IQ scores, several other measures were taken into account by Terman. These included intellectual success, of relatives of the subjects, their body size, their medical history, educational history, achievements, personality, intellectual and recreational interests, etc. Very early on, the termites overturned the early ripe, early rotten hypotheses and dispelled the image of the intelligent child as being scrawny, emotionally labile, and socially inept. In general, the termites were typically above population normal and were stronger, healthier, more successful both socially and economically. However, the surprising thing is that as the cohort matured, its members did not produce a significant number of creative individuals. There were very few successful writers, musicians, artists, innovative scientists, or creative mathematicians amongst them. There was no Nobel Prize winners in the group, and to put this into perspective, two other Nobel laureates born in the same era in California where this cohort had been selected did not make the cut to be included in Terman's genius group. These were uh, William Stockley and Luis Alvarez, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics. Let's look at the Terman geniuses for closure before moving ahead, as this is a fascinating story indeed. 757 individuals from this cohort who were available to assess at midlife were found to have the following percentages. 45.6% were professionals, 40% were managerial, 10% were in retail business, 1.6% in agriculture, and 1.2% in semi-skilled occupations. There were two successful writers and one Oscar-winning filmmaker in this cohort. Why is this study so important? This was perhaps the first study that showed that genius, in the sense of creativity, is not the same as intelligence, as measured by IQ, and thus the erroneous reliance on the IQ tests as a measure of creativity was dispelled pretty much early on. However, the misconceptions continue to pervade the general thinking to this day. I think at this stage, it is important to see how the definitions of intelligence and creativity have come to be over the century before we look at the newer realms and directives. Intelligence, simply speaking, is the ability to recall and process information and relies on a linear method of thinking. It thrives on memory, concentration, reasoning, and logic. Creativity, on the other hand, is to come up with something that is new and unique 
even if it is simply looking at existing data from a newer perspective. This relies on being less particular about logic, reasoning and linearity, to see beyond patterns and boundaries and to be resourceful. Although not agreed upon universally, academics in the field of creativity have stressed that creativity must be composed of three essential components, namely originality, utility, and a product that results from the creative process. I must stress here that definitions and measurements of intelligence and creativity are not the final point of call. Rather, they are the starting or the reference point, point of discussion. They are mentioned here to anchor our discourse so that we can have a finer understanding of these processes by challenging their validity and to provide alternate points of view. For instance, while widely accepted, the IQ test itself has several limitations. In the beginning, it was mostly formed of and relied on verbal testing, which largely excluded non-verbal reason from the equation. Newer models of the IQ test have incorporated geometrical, graphical, and spatial questions, but depending on the media that they are presented, they have their own individual challenges. Secondly, the IQ test gave numeric value to intangible measures, which, to uh, be honest, was stark and sharp. It sounds a bit harsh, but putting it into historical and situational perspective, we can see that it was probably a good starting point and was needed to create a framework on which to build this discipline on. And hence we are today discussing it in retrospect. Similarly, in the evolving definitions of creativity, where they spring from whatever is lacking in the intelligence theories, they also rely on them for taking form. The questions that this leads to are, is creativity a completely different thing from intelligence? Are they interconnected? Are they related? Is it too simplistic to try and separate them? These are all valid questions and we will build our answers to them in subsequent parts of this podcast. But going back to the example of the interview question by Neil deGrasse, where he would hire the individual with the better method rather than better recall, we can see that he preferred the creative attitude. But can or does creativity exist without intelligence? From a neurobiological point of view, it is claimed that the brain networks that support creativity are essentially the opposite of those that support logic and reasoning. When we study the neuroanatomy of the brain, we will look at this in more detail. However, for now, let us just suffice to say that it has been argued that you need to have a certain level of basic intelligence in order for creativity to come into play in a beneficial manner. As we delve deeper into the nitty-gritty of creativity, we will examine why there is a recent advocacy of changing our definitions and measures of intelligence by the neuroscience community.
We will also examine the philosophical aspects of why IQ rimmed generations as a consequence of the post-World War I era were perhaps essential to the development of the capitalist society, how they shaped the workforces and educational systems. An important aspect of our discussion will be the cultural variation in the reception of creativity and its cultivation and how the globalization of a few key languages is sweeping across the cultural boundaries with their ideas but are being influenced by them in return. I'm your host Arshia Qasim and you have been listening to Networks, the Neuroscience of Creativity. I look forward to receiving questions, comments, suggestions from my listeners. Please subscribe to this channel and leave your feedback on my website which is arshiaqasim.com. I'll spell this out for you. A-R-S-H-I-A-Q-A-S-I-M.com. This episode was recorded on July 2nd, 2018. There are no financial or other disclosures to be made. This is a purely academic endeavor. Au revoir.